Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 11? We'll read our text this morning. We're going to read 17 through 35. So now when Jesus came, he finally arrives close there to Bethany. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, my, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. I was hoping today to get Lazarus out of the tomb, but he's going to have to wait a week. We're going to get him out next week. Um, and so uh, there's just so much here um, that I wanted to make sure that we really got everything that is in the text um, for us. The Apostle Paul wrote a very interesting verse that is really important for us, and it, and it holds for us deep doctrine, a very important doctrine. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, this is what Paul writes. For in him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let me read it again. Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We're going to see both of these aspects today in John chapter 11. And this doctrine is called the doctrine of the incarnation. And it's really, really important. And it's this reality that when Christ came, He had two natures in one person. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And as Jesus steps into Bethany on this day where people are grieving, He is going to bring both aspects of His nature into the midst of the people there. And we will see some really important things about Him. The complexity of Jesus is pretty amazing. And so He will step into Bethany today in the full fullness of the authority of God. And yet He will also, at the same time, we will see the incredible magnificence of His humanity and it's an intriguing look that we will see today and so the incarnation that Jesus is both God and man forever and yet one person is really important and I want to talk about that just for a moment by way of introduction and then we'll begin to walk through the text I'm very thankful and you should be as well if you've been in the faith that 
for a long time now, for a couple of thousand years, there have been people like you and I who have fought for the purity of great doctrine and strong, strong doctrine. And, and there have been people throughout the ages who have had councils and they have fought against false teaching in regard to the nature of Jesus. And so I'm very thankful for those. And one of those times that took place was uh, in the 5th century in the modern-day country of Turkey in the city of Chalcedon. We would know it as uh, Istanbul today. There was a council there where they were meeting to address this issue of this false teaching about the nature of Christ. And so there's this statement called the Chalcedonian Statement that really affirms the nature of Jesus and really clarifies things. And I want to share those. There's kind of five summary things that they really established at, um, at that conference that was really important for us. Five truths that I think we will see evident in the text today. And they are really important for us to understand. You students, when you go away, you're going to go to a place that are going to not affirm what I'm going to talk about today. They're going to kind of tear down the nature of Jesus. And, I, and what, what I'm going to talk about today, if you will embrace these things, um, these will, when you hear a professor or you hear a, a roommate or someone else say anything about the nature of Jesus, you will know that there have been people for the last 2,000 years that have fought for the purity of the nature of Christ. Here's the, here's the first summary statement that they put together. And, and by the way, you can go home and Google this, the Chalcedonian statement. It's a statement and it's Got some really big words from the 5th century, but really, really important things. Here's the first thing. They affirm that Jesus has two natures. He is God and he is man, and yet he is one person. So he is fully God, he is fully man, and yet he is one person. The second thing that they established in that statement was, is that each nature of Jesus is completely full and complete. So when it speaks about that he's, he's man, it means that he is fully man. He is not less than man. When it speaks about that he is God, he is not less than God because he is also man. He is fully God and he is fully man. So they affirm that he has two natures. He is God and man. Each of those natures is full and complete. He is fully God and he is fully man. He is not less than either one of those of the two of those. Here's the third thing. And yet each nature is distinct in and of itself. He is not some kind of new mixed person who becomes a third type of person. It's not that aspect. He is one person who has two natures. And so let me illustrate that just for a moment. Neither one of the natures change the other nature. So as his human nature, his human nature did not become divine and his divine nature did not become human. Um, so they establish that, that each nature is distinct. The fourth thing that they establish is, is that Christ is only one person. He's not two persons. He is one person. So, and he, by the way, stays one person for all of eternity. When we get to heaven one day, one of the incredible realities is, we will see the scars that are on his body. We will see the nails. We will see this reality of the glory of who he is, for he is one person and he will stay one person. He has two natures that are united in one person forever. When you look at the Gospels and Jesus speaks of himself, he never says we, he says I. He is one person. He is not two persons. He is not a hybrid breed of something. He is incredibly unique. And here's the fifth statement that they established. That things that are true of each one of those natures 
is nonetheless true of the entire person of Jesus. So there are things of his human nature that are not true of his divine nature and vice versa. Let me give you an illustration. In his human nature, he had to eat. He needed to sleep. In his divine nature, he doesn't need to eat food. He doesn't need to sleep. There were things that were true of his divine nature that were not true of his human nature. You remember in John chapter 8, we've talked about this a few months ago. Jesus said before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. So his human nature did not exist before Abraham, but his divine nature existed before Abraham. And so that's why Jesus could speak of these things. This doctrine is really important. And so so way back when in 451 AD, they fought, oh, the church fought for, for the establishment and the fighting for the glorious nature of Christ. And we're going to see that today in the text. So look with me. We're going to read the verses again, and I want to point out some things. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the arrival of the sovereign power of Christ in the city of Bethany. Look with me in 17 through 19 again. So now when Jesus came, he found out that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So what we have been waiting for is this arrival of Jesus. He's been waiting and delaying for four days because there is a purpose and design in his coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's finally arriving in Bethany. They've sent word several days before, will you come? Lazarus is about to die. Jesus stays, but now he's here. So what is he going to do? How will he explain to the sisters why he delayed himself all of this time? But a bigger question is this. Is it too late for Lazarus? Is it too late for Christ in his sovereign power to do anything? So his delay has found Lazarus in the tomb for four days. And after four days, strictly speaking, I think we could be honest about this. The reality of a continuing of earth life isn't very hopeful. This is not something that is going to continue on and it seems from a human perspective to look at it that there's not anything that could be done four days dead is pretty dead I'm guessing that's what I know and this is the reality when Jesus arrives in Bethany now listen to this he has raised already two other people from the dead but he has done so on the day that they died Jairus's daughter he raised on the day that she died maybe probably not maybe just a few hours afterwards There's another resurrection that took place that Christ did. Um, When the widow of Nain, there was a funeral procession was there. Jesus stops the funeral procession and raises the widow of Nain's son. Those are both resurrections on the day of death. This resurrection is very unique that it has occurred four days after death. And so, so there's a purpose to this one to show the incredible sovereign power of Christ. And so any place that Jesus is, Any place that he is present is one in which something powerful can happen and take place. Nothing is too late when Jesus is present. And he doesn't have to do anything at all on this day, this fourth day, to be good. He doesn't doesn't become good because he does something on this fourth day. He is good whether he does anything or not. But he's going to do something incredibly good that will give a great affirmation that not only is Christ good, but he has this great power to change and transform not just our physical bodies, but he has this incredible power to transform our spiritual lives. And so sometimes we don't know what all God 
is up to, but we know that in the moment, this moment, Jesus has been waiting for this moment to arrive as he comes into Bethany because he is going to show the greatness of his glory in the midst of the people before their eyes in the city. And no one knows the plan but Jesus. And he's been waiting for this as he shows up in the city. We wrestle with the crises in our lives. And sometimes we have a perspective that sometimes we we allow our Selves to buy the lie that Jesus is not really interested in aspects of our lives. Um, he lacks the time. Maybe he's got more critical issues at hand. Or we've also convinced ourselves of this, is that we have not earned enough credit for him to do something in our lives by being good. And it has nothing to do with any of those things. He has the sovereign power regardless of whether we're good enough not good enough, and he is good in everything. And in spite of the, the questions sometimes that arise in our hearts about what God can cry and Christ can do in our lives, I just want to remind us that he has the sovereign power to do anything. And we must believe that, that he is able. We sang that in the beginning. He is able. He can do things. And whether he does or he doesn't, he is still good, and he still deserves our worship. So let me give you a little perspective of what's taking place as Jesus arrives in Bethany. The Jewish burial customs were very unique. Um, and so he arrives there. Lazarus, again, as I've said, he's been dead for four days. The Jewish period of mourning was prolonged. There were seven days of really intense mourning. And then there was a softer mourning that continued for 30 more days. And so usually um, for about 37 days, there was pretty... pretty um, often a consistent mourning that was taking place all over the nation. And so when Christ shows up four days later, they are in the heart of the most intense mourning that is taking place in the city. So people from all over the region have come who know Mary and Martha, who, who may have known Lazarus. Many people from the village of Bethany would have shown up and they would have been around. Many would have been in the house mourning with Mary and Martha and taking care of things. Now the Jews never embalmed. And so when you died... On that day, they would wash the body, they would wrap it, and then they would put spices on it, and they would quickly put you in the tomb. And so this has been done quickly for Lazarus. He's been in the tomb um, for four days uh, when Christ arrives here. And as many as possible would attend the funeral. Um, By way of courtesy or by way of respect, this is what you would do. Uh, If the funeral possession would be passing by, you would, out of respect, join that, and you would follow them all the way to the place where the person would be buried. And so, again, we are four days into the mourning process. In the home of the family that is grieving, um, there were certain customs that they followed. Um, As long as you were in the house on the day, particularly on the day that someone died, you were forbidden to eat any kind of meat or to drink wine. You couldn't wear, uh, like a Pharisee couldn't wear the the things that they they hung down or even other other the phylacteries where that had you know they hung down from their hair and their, or their clothing and had scripture inside of them you couldn't wear those you couldn't study at all it was just a pretty serious time of mourning um, when the person body if it was in the house and was carried out they would when they carried the body out they would take all the furniture and turn the furniture backwards and then they would sit on the floor after the person was put into the tomb they would come back to the house and they would often eat bread and hard-boiled eggs and lentils. The round eggs and the lentils 
pictured for the Jews this onward rolling and movement that everybody has until you die. So this deep mourning lasted seven days. First three to four days were a period of time of weeping. So when Christ arrives, everywhere there's this loud reaping. You could actually hire people. You could have a job to be a professional weeper and a professional mourner. So when Christ is showing up to Bethany on this day, there's a lot of weeping, there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of noise that is happening and taking place. And so the power of God, though, is arriving in Bethany. So how do we respond to Christ's sovereign, incredible, complete power when He steps into the midst of our life in the heaviness of our life? And the text is going to reveal to us how we ought to respond to the glory of Christ when He comes near. And here's the first thing that we learn in verse 20 through 22. So look what verse 20 says. So when Martha heard, so somebody sees Jesus approaching, he's not in the city yet, heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21 says, so when she got to Jesus, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in 22, but even now she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Let me tell you what you and I do, because they're going to come. We are going to have moments that are overwhelming in our lives. So what do we do in those moments? Here's what Mary, here's what Martha teaches us. Martha teaches us that we ought to run to Jesus and get ourselves in his presence. So she gets word, Jesus is here. She gets the news. She immediately leaves, and she runs to the place where Jesus is. So what should our pain prompt us to do? What do we learn from Martha? We run and go and meet Jesus face to face. As she gets there, she engages him in a conversation. We just get a brief insight on what's there. There was likely more things communicated, but she goes and she gets there in this face-to-face relationship with Christ. That's the first thing that you and I ought to do every time that we experience any kind of pain and doubt in our lives is run and get face-to-face with Christ. Secondly, this is what Martha does. Notice what she says here. She, She knows who Jesus is. She calls him Lord. She calls him, you are the sovereign one. You are the one who is over all things. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The second encouragement and counsel from Martha is this, is acknowledge the sovereignty and acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Sometimes we don't understand the answers to things that come. And so even when we get in the presence of Christ and we pour our hearts out to Him, sometimes it's not until later that we fully understand what God is up to. And so Martha gets there and she acknowledges Him, but there's a little bit of doubt, a little bit still, of whether He can do anything in the moment. Because she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I just remind us that this acknowledgement of His Lordship is really important for us in our lives. Here's the third really critical thing that we learn from Martha. Never lose or lack the faith that he is able. She has a little bit of doubt, a little bit, that the if question that is there. But then she says this, look at 22. She acknowledges, but even now I know this, 
that the Father hears you. When you pray and you speak to Him, He hears your voice. And so, Lord, even now I know this, that whatever you ask from God, your Father, God will give it to you. In my study and in, in looking at this text, um, some of the commentators suggested that Martha maybe was um, giving Jesus a bit of rebuke for delaying and coming when he, when they had sent such an important word to him that Lazarus was sick, and I don't, I don't think that at all. I think this is a, I think this is a statement of faith, recognizing who he is. But there's also, if you've been there, when grief fills your heart, sometimes there's just, there's that meeting of the reality of life and and and, and our faith, and and while we believe, there's still there's an aspect of us that just wonders, can God do? And so, um, Martha wants to believe she wants to believe but her words indicate that she's a little bit unsure and as a, as a matter of fact three times she kind of expresses her uncertainty so in verse 21 she said lord if you had been here my brother would not have died in verse 23 jesus says hey your brother will rise again and she said well yeah i know that he's gonna he's gonna rise in the last day and jesus is not talking about the end of time he was talking about that day and then in verse 39 uh Jesus says, take away the stone, and, and she, uh, the King James, I love the King James Version on this one. Uh, she says, Lord, he's been in there four days, and King James Version says, he stinketh. This is not, this is, uh, not going to be one of these moments that when we roll that stone away that everybody's going to be really excited who is close to the tomb. And so she still acknowledges him in 39, Lord... By this time there would be an older, for he has been dead four days. All of those are not full-throated statements of full confidence. There's faith that's there, recognizing who Christ is, and yet there's still a little bit of an indication that she's not fully sure. But I, but I think the, the point here is clear. Pain comes in the form of sickness. It comes in death. It comes in relationship stuff. Loss of a job, loss of a house, just on and on and on. Things that we can experience in life. And as a believer, when these moments come, the encouragement is that even in the midst of the doubt, run to Jesus. Get face to face with Christ. And allow Him to bring the clarity that we need in the midst of those things. Now let's look at the next thing we ought to do. We ought to trust His words now when He speaks them. Not just thinking about the by and by. That there are aspects of things that he can do now that sometimes we missed. So the, so the next counsel is this, that we trust his words now, not just in the future. Look at verse 23. So Jesus said to her, Mary, your brother will rise again. Now what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about that day, right? He's been waiting for this. He was delaying so that when he got to Bethany, he would raise Lazarus so that God would get glory. That's early on in John chapter 11. That's why he delayed. And so Jesus here is not talking about the end of time at the final resurrection. Jesus is speaking about that day. And so she says, your brother will rise again. And Martha gets the doctrine. I know, Lord, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When Christ speaks in His Word to you and I, revealing His nature and revealing who He is, 
These are not earth's words. These are heaven's words. They are from the very heart and mind of an infinite God who has perfect wisdom. So on this day when he says, your brother will rise, Jesus was speaking about that day in that moment. Sometimes, here's the reality. So listen to this, because a lot of us struggle with this. A lot of times we have the doctrine down. We get the doctrine, but we miss the point. We got the doctrine, but we miss the point. What did Mary understand? She understood that based on Job and Daniel and Isaiah, that there are three really key Old Testament passages that spoke about in the final days that there will be a resurrection of our bodies that will be raised to life. And she got the doctrine, but she was missing the point of what Jesus was teaching on this day. Listen to these great words. This is Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Job speaks these words. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed... Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job understood that there was going to be a raising of his body one day, and he would see with his body raised, he would see the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, the prophet said these words, Your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel said it this way in Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And when Christ in John chapter 5 began to teach publicly, he connected these three Old Testament passages with his words in John chapter 5, verse 28, where Jesus said, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when everybody who is in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now watch this. Watch what we learn about Martha. This is a deeply discipled woman. This is a woman who gets doctrine. She understands that there's going to be a physical resurrection based on the Old Testament. Now, the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection at the end of days. The Sadducees denied that there would be a resurrection, but Martha gets it. And so she says to Jesus, I've got the doctrine. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you missed the point. I'm about to do something now. Yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. But I'm going to do something now. So hear my words now. Your brother will rise again today. Today, I'm about to do something in your midst. She had the doctrine down, but missed the point of what he was saying. I encourage us this morning in this reality, do not miss the now as we long for the future. Sometimes we, in the midst of our pain and our wrestling, we look and think about heaven a lot and which is totally good. The Bible does encourage that. But sometimes we miss the living in the now. That sometimes in the midst of the pain of this life, there is something, listen, that God wants to do now. Not just waiting, but God wants to do now. That we taste and see and know that now in these moments, 
that he is good, that he's worthy to be trusted. Even when it appears he is delayed in such a way that it is too late. The now, right now, right now, May 23rd, 2021, holds unbelievable promise for you and I. Why? Because Christ is the resurrection and the life. He has conquered the grave. He has offered us this incredible hope. So standing in the midst of Martha face to face, he is telling her, no, I'm not talking about you've got great hope to look forward to down the road. I am speaking to you now. You have hope today. And only the words of Jesus can ultimately bring you and I the comfort that we need to understand this life. And so he speaks his words into her state of grief, reminding her of who he is. Psalm 119.25 says this, My soul clings to the dust. And then David says, Give me life, God, according to your word. It is his words when he speaks that bring about life. So when we experience pain, run and get to Jesus face to face. Acknowledge who he is. Secondly, when he speaks, see that there is an opportunity that even now, not just in the future, for a healing and a movement of God to take place. Here's the third thing that we've got to know. We must know Jesus and embrace that he is the resurrection and the life. Look at 25 and 26. So Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks Martha, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe that this is true? So let me talk about the first part of this, the nature of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. I know standing before you this morning, as you look up here, everybody look up here, Open your eyes wide. This is an incredible bodily specimen standing before you today. It is aged well. Um, Rocky, don't laugh about that. <clears throat> this is an unbelievable reality. And, and, and it's one that we embrace. I, I love the hope that as we grow older and as we continue to grow older, this body breaks down and yet on the inside the Apostle Paul reminds us in his writings that we are being renewed on the inside day by day, being shaped more and more like Christ. And there's going to be a day that this body is put into the ground and it will, be, it will decay, it will become dust. And the miraculous thing about Christ is he knows where every body of every saint, every believer from all time, he knows where they all are. And when he brings about this resurrection, every body of the saints will be reunited physically with their soul and there will be a perfection there will be this work that we will be as he is so this great work that is going to come comes because he is something his name is something that we embrace and his name is resurrection and life And so all through John, there are seven statements that Jesus makes, these I am statements, where he makes this declaration, I am God, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. Um, And so here Jesus makes another one, I am, this is who I am, this is my nature, this is who you ought to call me, I am the resurrection and 
the life. Back in John chapter 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Jesus said, So also the Son gives life to whom He will. I already read John chapter 5, 25 and following. And so in saying these words to Martha, He is saying to her, Martha, I don't want you to think about the event of the resurrection. I want you to think about the person who's behind the resurrection, and that's me. I want you to think about me. I'm the one who's going to bring about the resurrection that you understand And so I want you to focus and I want you to notice the person behind the event is greater than the event. The one who can do this is the one who is greater. And I am here now. I am present face to face in this area where we're about to head to the tomb and I'm going to do something. So to think about the person doing the resurrection is way more important than the actual resurrection because that proves that he has the power to back up this claim that he is the resurrection and the life. And so he tells her, without me there is no resurrection. Without me there is no life. And I'm, he's making this incredible emphatic double statement here about who he is. He is the resurrection and he is the life. Whoever believes in Jesus will live spiritually and eternally, even though they physically die. Jesus is all. He is everything. And our hope rests in Him. So His nature is, and His name is, the resurrection and the life. And this is what, this is what Jesus was communicating to her. Turn your eyes away from the grieving. And fix your eyes on me because I'm the one who can bring hope to your life today in the midst of your grief. I am everything. I alone can raise Lazarus. I alone can raise you. And here's the great work of Jesus as the one who is the resurrection and the life that whoever believes in Him, whoever has faith in Him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and who believes in Him shall never die. And He just specifically looks at Martha and says, Do you, Martha, do you believe this right now? That it's not the event is coming But do you believe that I am the one who's going to bring about this event? Not only is this hope of a physical resurrection true, this is a promise of the security of our salvation. It is also the promise that our salvation is real. And so he asks her two questions. Do you believe in the doctrine of the resurrection? She already does. And then he makes it more personal. Do you believe, Martha, that I'm the one that's going to bring that about? Do you believe that I have that power? Let me make three statements just to remind us this morning. Death is not the end for those of us who believe. It's just a step to our real life. This life has trouble. It will continue to. And when we leave this life, we will step into His presence. It's a step into real, real life. Secondly, those who believe will live. They will never spiritually die. They will physically die but they will never spiritually die. Thirdly, therefore, it is of the utmost necessity to what? Believe. To believe and never die. So we ask her, do you believe and know that I am the resurrection and the life? Look at 27. And so she said, yes, Lord. Here's where my faith rests now. He's explained it. He's communicated who he is. 
And she says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. You're the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is not this phrase, who is coming into the world, is not future. This is, it means has come is what this means. You are the one who has come. And so what do we do in the midst of our pain? What do we do to understand meaning of life? We put full faith in Jesus Christ as God who has come near to us. So it took a little adjusting in her mind to understand who he is. And she says, yes, you are these things. I believe this, that you are the resurrection. You are the life. You are so much more. And listen, students, listen, church, listen to this. Knowing who he is, knowing his names, knowing the names of God are really important for us. Because who he is by name communicates what he will be in our lives. And how we ought to worship Him and how we ought to acknowledge Him. And so as He declares her, I am the resurrection and the life, right there by a tomb in a graveyard where death was all around and grieving was encompassing all of the people. He is telling her, listen, I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living because I'm the God who lives. And so I am the resurrection. I am the life. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe this. Her answer is focused on the person of Christ, the glory of Christ. And her answer just communicates this incredible Christ-centered perspective that she has. And I tell you, sometimes in the darkest moments, faith arises. And this light and beauty shines in the midst of this. And this is what's taken place with Martha. Faith can erupt in the greatest moments of pain. How? By standing face to face with Jesus and getting his perspective on life. So this is a woman here, Martha of deep faith, one who gets it in the moment, though there's a little bit of wrestling still, but she recognizes God had come near to save and to be around, and our faith faith must rest here, church. We acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. That's what Martha does. Yes, Lord. I acknowledge your Lordship. Secondly, we must believe He is the Christ. She says that. I believe you are the Christ. Thirdly, we must affirm Him as the Son. She says that. You are the Son of God. You are unique. There is none like you. And fourthly, we embrace this reality that He is God who has come near in the incarnation. Fully man. Fully God in the midst of a broken world as the answer, as the resurrection, and as the life. So it's clear in her mind now. You know what happens when it becomes clear to us? And I hope, students, for you, when you go away to college and your faith grows and your, your trust, regardless of what the culture affirms about Jesus, my prayer is that your faith will grow stronger as you spend time with God face-to-face in the Scripture that you will get to the place where you are eventually motivated with what Martha does here. When we know who He is, you know what's natural for us? We want others to know who He is. Where's her sister? She's back at the house, in a house full of what? Mourners, weeping, loud, keeping the focus on, there's no hope, there's no hope. Martha, it's clear in her mind, Not perfectly all the way, but pretty clear. And she recognizes this. My sister, watch this. My sister needs to hear 
what I've just heard. And so she leaves and she goes to get her sister. Look at 28. And when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying it in private, got right up next to her ear, hey, Jesus is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him and Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still outside the village where Martha had met him. 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Let me just make this point real quick. When we get who he is and we've experienced it, we want to bring others and their brokenness to be in the presence of Christ and to hear the hope that rests in who he is as the resurrection and life. Faith sends us onward to tell people. Now look at 32. We're almost done this morning. We must deal with our ifs. We all have ifs. And we must deal with them. And they must be dealt with in the presence of Jesus. 32. So Mary comes to where Jesus was and she saw him. And she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here. Does that sound familiar? My brother would not have died. It's intriguing that both sisters, when they get to Jesus, do two different things. Martha comes, and if you remember in Luke chapter 10, you remember Jesus and the disciples had come into Bethany, and Martha was in the kitchen serving, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's all hot and bothered because she's in the kitchen working and her sister's out there just sitting at Jesus' feet, gazing in his face, listening to the words that he was teaching. And Martha's kind of a bold, in-your-face kind of person. And so she comes out of the kitchen and stops the Bible study. Jesus, do you not see that I'm really busy and, and doing stuff? And look at my sister, lazy sister, sitting there listening to your words. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you never want Jesus to tell your name, call your name twice. Martha, Martha, you're just upset about a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter. Martha, your sister, Jesus says, has chosen the greater prize. And I'm not going to take it from her. So Martha comes to Jesus outside of Bethany, face to face. Mary comes. We see Mary three times in the Gospels. You know what she's doing? We'll see her again in, in chapter 12. You know what we see of her all three times? She is at the feet of Jesus all three times. You know what we learn about Martha? She is at the face of Jesus, sharing her heart, sometimes a little bit stronger than maybe she needed to, but she's still pouring her heart out to him. There are two ifs that the sisters speak, and they are the exact same words. They respond differently posture-wise, but verbally they say the same thing. Both of them say, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. The word if and God are an interesting partnership. Sometimes it can be a positive thing. If you do this, God says, I will do this. But then sometimes if is more negative as it is connected to doubt. We must deal with our ifs. In this room today, I guarantee you, there's all kinds of ifs in our lives, and we're wondering 
Can God do something in my marriage? Can God do something in this? Can God do this? Ifs are grounded in a limiting perspective of God. Listen to these. If we had not moved, if I had not taken that job, if my health, if my boss, if COVID had not entered the world, if my spouse were different, if I hadn't gone there, if he or she would just blank, if I had more money than this, if God would do this, if my marriage, if that moment had not happened, if my parents would this, if I hadn't sent that email or posted that or texted that, if I had not gone to that website, if I had not opened my mouth again. And I just want to say this morning, we must deal with our ifs. And we must leave our ifs in His presence and be reminded that as they say, Lord, if you had been here, you'd have been here on time, and my brother would not be dead. And Jesus is like, if is just a two-letter word. That's nothing to me. And so it's not whether I arrive early. I can arrive late. And I can do something incredible in your midst. So how do you deal with ifs? What do we do with them? And I saw something interesting in here about how you deal with them. Both sisters will eventually get to the place where they recognize what Christ can do. But the first way that we deal with our ifs is we must behold Jesus face to face. Face to face. The second way that we deal with our ifs is we do this. We bow. We bow before Him. Like Mary does, she comes and she's got an if. She doesn't know what to do, but she does this. She bows at Jesus' feet. And she's going to lay that there recognizing that He's Lord, that He's sovereign. And that though she doesn't understand, she's recognizing who He is. So we deal with our ifs about our marriage, about our relationships, about our future, about our present, about all the uncertainties, about our past, by beholding and bowing, and thirdly, listen, by believing His promises. That He, when He speaks, He follows through. And ultimately, we must embrace that direction of trusting Him fully. All right, here's the last thing. I am amazed by this and what we're closing with. So we talked about up to this point in time His divine nature, that He is the resurrection and the life, that He's never too late. He's always right on time and He can do whatever. And now I want us to see this divine, this, He's divine, but I want us to see this incredibly tender human nature of Jesus. Look at 33. So Mary's at his feet. Martha's nearby. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews that had come with Mary, they were weeping. He was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. It's been the long-running joke, I think, since the first century, although we didn't have verses back in the first century. It's, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? It's John eleven twenty-five, and that short verse holds so much truth in it, so much incredible truth. We do not have a high priest. 
Hebrews 4 tells us, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted like we are. He gets temptation, and yet he never gave in to temptation. He is yet without sin. So Jesus on that day looked around. He saw Mary weeping. He saw the ladies weeping. He just had a conversation with Martha. She had probably been crying as well. He could see what only God could see in His divine nature. And He felt what only He could feel. The heaviness of the weight in the midst of the grief there. You see, our God gets this life because He was here. Students, the uniqueness of our faith, of all the religions in the world, and there are so many religions in the world, thousands of them, there is one that stands out, and it's Christianity. And it stands out for this reason. Our God came here, and He took on flesh. And He knows your pain better than you know your pain. And He will know in your hard days in this first semester, and there will be some in the midst of all the joy of being away and doing what you're doing. He will be present, and He can be real in those moments. But I want you to know this. He understands life. And that's an amazing thing about Christianity. Our God didn't stay away and just say, good luck to y'all down there in your sin. should have listened to me, Adam and Eve. But he came in Genesis 3 to the garden. You remember that? And he addressed their sin. He covered their nakedness. And then 2,000 years ago on a cross, his blood was shed to cover our spiritual nakedness and to raise us to life. And so here's Jesus standing on the outskirts of Bethany and he feels the grief. And look what it says there. He saw and he groaned. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In verse 38, look at verse 38 just for a moment. We're going to look at it next week. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Let me tell you what this word moved means and groaning in himself. You ever been around a horse? When a horse snorts? That's what this Greek word means. Watch this. This is so amazing. In the midst of grieving people, thinking it's all over, there's no hope here today. Jesus moved in the midst of the pain. And so moved, God in a body let out a noise from inside, feeling the pain that everybody was feeling. He gets it. And he lets out this this loud noise, this noise comes out of him as he stands in the midst. The ultimate outcome of sin is death. And here he is about to go to the place where Lazarus is buried and he's there in the midst of people thinking it's all over. There's no hope today and he he feels it. And there's an anger, is he a righteous anger as he stands there in the midst of the grieving against what death does. And listen to this. He chooses in that moment to identify. Listen, don't miss this. He chooses in that moment to identify with the sorrow that comes because of the finality and the vileness of sin and the grief that it brings. And he feels what everybody in that moment is feeling. A righteous wrath 
in the form of a sound was uttered by Jesus. He groaned in his spirit. And it's an amazing revelation of his heart that he felt inside of him what the mourners were feeling. And so Jesus asked them, well, where is Lazarus? Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. By the way, in the four Gospels, this is the only time Jesus ever asked for information. He asked questions, but he never asked information. And I don't have a big spiritual point with that. Um, I'm sure he knew where the tomb was, but he just asked, where is Lazarus? And then verse 35 says, and Jesus wept. He wept. This word wept in the Greek means not to watch a movie and tear up at a heroic tender moment or whatever it is. This is what this word means. The kind of tears that so well up in your eyes that you can't keep them inside. And I want you to see this and I want you to picture it in your mind. He looks at the grieving and his righteous anger of what sin had brought standing in the midst of that. And tears just well up in the sun of God's eyes and they can't stay in and they're rolling down his cheek. If you've ever cried like that, you know that. And this is the Son of God crying this way. Is that not amazing? See, all the other religions of the world, you know what they communicate? That their God is up in heaven and He's just angry all the time, wanting to get people. Our God, yes, is a judge and He will righteously judge. But He came into this world not to condemn the world. He came in the world to do what? To save it. He came in to save it. There are two times that Jesus cried in the Gospels. One was looking at Jerusalem where tears are just pouring down His cheeks and on the way to a tomb in Bethany. It's an amazing moment. And I love the fact in the story, listen to this, He doesn't tell anybody to get over their grief. Get over it. He doesn't tell anybody to stop their grieving. He doesn't tell anybody to stop hurting or to stop crying. You know what He does? He joins in the sorrow and He cries too. God crying human tears. What an amazing picture. It's a staggering moment. And I'm going to close with this. I've thought this week, could there be another perspective of his tears that we ought to at least consider? I've been that way before where I'm so caught up emotionally. You don't think you've been there? You just don't think. You're just like, you're just emotional and there's not a clear thinking. Well, that can't be true about Jesus. He's not so emotional in this moment that he's not thinking. He's the all-wise God. He's the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is, he is the divine reason of everything. Why did He come to Bethany four days late? Y'all remember? Look at verse 4 of John 11. But when Jesus heard it, He said this illness does not lead to death in regard to Lazarus continuing to be dead. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I just want to pose something before you today for your consideration. Could they also be incredible tears of joy 
about what he's about to do. He's about to call out a dead man four days to walk out of a tomb. So yes, I don't want to downplay that he feels the emotion, but I also don't want to downplay the joy that he has in bringing life where death is present. Don't lose sight of the joy that was Jesus's and that he is the resurrection and the life. So we're going to get that guy out of the tomb next week, okay? So be here. He'll be out. What a beautiful moment. Let's pray.